Good evening and welcome to Mets 360 here on CAST. I'm your host, Brian Jura, and we're rejoined tonight by friend of the show, John Springer. John, welcome back. Thanks, Brian. Happy to be here. Well, let's get right back into it. If my phone doesn't go off. All right, let's get right back into it. Um, we're talking about the, the Mets and uh, a lot of stuff's going on with the Mets. Uh, let's start with uh, Yuena Cespedes. Um, lots of uh, confusion and, and misunderstanding about uh, the extent of his injuries and even what the injury is. So what's your take on the whole Yuena Cespedes kerfuffle here? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think you said it pretty well. It's confusion and misunderstanding. Um, I mean, it, it does sound a little bit like the, you know, the Beltran situation several years back where there, you know, the, there's obviously some, uh, you know, friction between or there's some room in between sort of the understanding of what he needs to uh, uh, get back onto the field. You know, the, the, the club would obviously prefer he does. I think the player is thinking about his own health and, and probably answering honestly when he says that he feels as though, you know, he may need surgery to get better. Um, so, you know, you add in the add in the language issues, and um, you know, you got a typical um, you know Met style mess. And, uh, and you know, the way these things unfold is is really the the worst of it. You know, if he just said, you know, hey, we're going to miss this year for an injury, you know, that's terribly disappointing. But at least we get on with it. Um, and, you know, it, it seems like in this case, it's going to be one of those situations where. You know, it's going to drag on for for a long time, and there's always going to be something in the back of the you know the fans' mind saying, you know, is this guy actually healthy? Could he be better if you you know got this surgery that he's you know feels as though he needs? And you know, what are the Mets' intentions in in you know either asking him not to do this or you know you know perfectly within their rights to have experts who think that maybe it's not necessary. So. Um, you know, for a fan, it's a terrible spot to be in, and, and it just seems like we, we get, you know, this happens so often. Now, one of the things that uh, Sandy Alderson instituted, uh, actually began instituting in the middle of last year and then uh, beefed up in, in the offseason, allegedly, was a, a new way to streamline how the club dealt with injuries, in, including internal communication. And it's kind of hard to look at the situation and, and, and see it as anything but a massive failure uh, yeah. on internal communication. So how did yeah. it happen? Uh, you know, you got me. Um, uh, you know, I, I'm probably not telling you anything that, that you, you don't know, but, um, you know, this the, these communication problems are, uh, you know, go back as long as the uh, – you know, as long as the franchise has existed, really, and you know, it's been especially acute uh, under the Wilpons. I think we've heard enough stories over the years that there's a, a kind of a, a wobbly organizational structure there, with you know, lines of communication aren't clear. Uh, you know, I don't know if you, in your career, you've ever worked in an organization that had suffered a similar thing, but it's a, it can be an incredibly frustrating thing to 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 be a part of every day and you know this idea that people know that the you know that the organization is is diseased in, in one way or another um, but nobody can sort of you know come up with a way to solve it uh, and then and then when you have these uh, you know unexpected events come up that's when the those communication problems get exposed um, I, I you know I, I try to tell myself that this is a 
Fred Wilpon thing or not a Jeff Wilpon thing, just because I know that Fred's closer to the end than Jeff, and, and uh, you know, maybe things will get better, but, um, you know, the more you read about it, the more you hear about it, you know, it, it almost seems like it's a continuation of, of the situation that we've seen, and, I mean, everything... You know, again, I don't want to credit myself for being, you know, prescient about this, but if you go back to, um, you know, the, the uh, you know, Terry Collins getting removed last year and then suddenly hired back into the organization, Omar Minaya coming up and then all these uh, unattributable quotes come out, um, you know, suggesting that the front office is being undermined. I mean, that is exactly what happened in 2004. Um, you know, and, and resulted in these, these mid-season disasters of the Victor Zambrano trade. Um, it, it really just seems like history just kind of repeats itself over and over with this organization. And, and uh, you know, as a fan, it's just really rough. You know, we have some decent history. Uh, two, two World Series titles, uh, some, some big trades made to acquire impact players. Why can't we, we repeat that history? It's it's incredible, and and when they and you know when the when the team is successful and when it's doing doing well, you know you, you believe it. They're they're you know the old cliche. There's no better place to play. There's no better fans in the world. You, you know that's very easy to buy into when when the team's in a in a period of success. Um, you know, I, I was fairly you know uh, optimistic um, about the way that Alderson was going about his business here in, in charge of the Mets these last couple of years. But, um, you know, uh, w- with the exception of, 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 you know, this this year's team being a little bit less, you know, imaginative maybe than, than some of the previous ones. Um, but again, you, you go back to these, you know, to this back channel, you know, if, if that's indeed what it was, a creation of some kind of back channel line of accountability, um, that might undermine uh, Alderson, and you you see it kind of play out that way. Uh, it's crazy. Um, you know, c- could the Mets, you know, make make a history of, of you know good success? Uh, you know, if they can get rid of these distractions, I don't see there's any reason why they couldn't. You know, it would take some luck. It would take some good players. Um, but uh, but yeah, you know. They've got a credibility problem with the fans now, and 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 they had it, you know, on and off over the years. But it's not it's not going to get better uh, after this season. And you thought, heck, we've been through this in 2004. We've been through this, in, you know, at the end of 2008. We've been, you know, it's just it's just uh, insane. It 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 goes over and over. Now, one thing that I guess is having some people question the credibility of the organization is, did the Mets get uh, enough in return for trading their closer, Jerry's Familia, uh, here in the, a couple of days ago? Uh, I, I'm probably not as down on it as a lot of the fans I've been reading on the you know social media. Um, I, I think, you know, I believe Rico when he says that it's a kind of a delicate balancing act here, you know, and, and I'm also you know, realistic about the fact that, you know, Familia is a guy who's got, what, 30 innings left in him before his contract's up. It's, it can't be worth that much. Um, you know, uh, it, it's a shame that the, you know, the Yankees were able to exploit this a little bit better with uh, Chapman a few years back. Um, but uh, I, I do believe they, they kind of went in there with a plan. Uh, I think the fans make a lot of the money. Could, could $3 million make that big of a difference? I don't know. 
you know, uh, what's going to happen with this international bonus money? I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt, and hopefully something co good comes of that. Um, and then, you know, obviously we're not going to get another familiar back, but they did get a major league ready reliever, and they got a left-handed hitting third baseman who's not a bad thing to have in the organization. Um, he's apparently got a good uh, batting eye, you know, reaches base, doesn't have a lot of power. You know, hey, that's Wayne Garrett, you know. He was a pretty useful player for several years with the Mets. Garrett uh, had the misfortune of being uh, 30 years too soon. If he had brought his uh, skill set uh, into the, the 90s and the aughts in, instead of the uh, 70s, uh, he would have been much more appreciated than he was. Maybe but, so, uh, but he's, he still wasn't a power hitter that you'd want your third baseman to be. You know, he was kind of famous for his warning track power, Garrett was. You know, he was a 15 home run a year guy, but he probably would have done better off being a 20 home run a year guy. Well, you also have to wonder if uh, the era he played in, they didn't uh, they didn't smile upon weight training, and oh, yeah. it's it's very easy to imagine that Garrett could have got himself into a uh, a, a program and, and added a little uh, strength and a little muscle, and maybe some of those warning track flies would have made it over. Yeah. But you, you mentioned Garrett, and uh, he's somebody I had in in mind here, uh, watching the game uh, that's going on right now. And Jose Bautista just scored to make it three to two, and Bautista wears number eleven. And when I watch Bautista, I get a little confused. I mean, uh, I see that number 11, and it just doesn't look right. And I keep going back and forth between thinking, eh, it's Wayne Garrett, uh, or maybe it's Ruben Tejada. So what do you think of when you see the number 11 on a uniform? I mean, when, when you started talking about number 11, the, the guy I flashed on was Frank Tavares, of all people. <laughs> the push-bunt guy. <laughs> yeah. He was the, uh, you know, I was an impressionable fan back then, and... Um, uh, you know, in, a, in an era where the Mets, you know, gave you very little to root for, um, the, the idea of getting a guy from the Pirates, which I thought was, you know, they, these were a quality uh, uh, organization. You know, they must this guy must be good. But uh, you know, you, you just mentioned the '70s. You know, Tavares was a guy who was overvalued in the '70s and probably would be undervalued, uh, or or uh, you know, rightly, you know, resigned to the minor leagues today in that he was a, a speed guy who didn't steal bases very effectively and, and a, a leadoff guy who couldn't reach pace at all. So, uh, you know, uh, uh, Frank Tavares was the first guy I thought of. Um, uh, Garrett, obviously, is an 11. Tim Tuffle is an 11. Um, I think about Lenny Randall was an 11. Um, uh, you know, for, for you know, um, George George Valandia and and uh, Ruben Tejada. So I, I think of it normally as a sort of a uh, a middle infielder number, and, and even Garrett played some second base in his career. So um, yeah, an outfielder with number eleven, it it's not quite right. You you'd figure that uh, you know Jay Bruce, especially since he's not showing up this year, could could give up nineteen for. Uh, uh, for Bautista, which he'd wore for so many years in, in uh, Toronto. That that would be something, uh, a player of Bruce's stature who, who certainly hopes to come back this year, how reasonable that is, I don't know, but uh, giving up his uh, uniform number, I'd, I'd, I'd be shocked. Uh, I'd be shocked at that. It'd be a nice gesture on his part, though. Yeah, yeah, of course. All right, well, as long as we're talking about uniform numbers, uh, 
something that uh, that occurred to me is uh, Familia. He, he's the the team's uh, single season uh, record holder for saves. I think he's third on the team uh, all time in saves. Uh, uh, he's he he was a good player for for a number of years. So how do the Mets uh, treat his uh, number twenty seven? Uh, do they do they take it out of circulation for a while, or do you think they give it to the next guy who asks for it? Yeah, I'm not sure if they give that a whole lot of thought anymore, um, <laughs> you know, but um, it, it, my suspicion would be uh, that that they won't reissue it for a little while. Um, uh, you know, obviously it's not going into mothballs forever, but, um, uh, you know, look, the Mets, the Mets are, are uh, you know, no compunctions about issuing guys numbers in the high 50s, 60s and low 70s anymore. Um, so it's not as though there's a finite group of numbers that, that uh, they're choosing from any longer. So, um, you know, if, if, if uh, uh, not, uh, uh, Bobby Wall comes up, I don't think they're going to give him 27. I think we're more likely to see him in, you know, 67 or 60, 68, I guess. There's a 67 on the team now, hard to believe. But um, so... You know they'll be careful with with uh, 27 at least for a while. Uh, what, what I was thinking about uh, the other day, I was actually trying to write about it uh, the other day, was was how far ahead of the rest of the group of, of men who've worn 27 that familiar really is. If you kind of look back through the history of the team, uh, you know you had Dennis Cook in the in the late 90s and. Uh, you know, uh, of course, Craig Swan in the 70s, but that's it, right? For 27s, there have been 30 different guys who've worn it, and and, and none of them have really ever amounted to much. Uh, so we'll, 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 we'll hold on to 27 for a bit, and maybe, you know, that's one of those numbers that kind of straddles the, the uh, outfielder-pitcher uh, dividing line. So, you know, it'll, it'll get reissued again um, uh, probably next year. Okay. Now, we touched briefly on this uh, earlier, um, the, the three-headed GM that the Mets have right now. Yeah. Um, are, you, are you concerned about that situation and, and what kind of deals that they're going to make the rest of the year? Because, you know, uh, I think, at least I thought that uh, uh, JR was going to be uh, one of the top candidates for the job, and, and now it seems like any of the three guys are afterthoughts. Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, it just seems like it's a very awkward situation, and I think back about when uh, Omar Minaya was running the Expos, and he knew it wasn't a long-time gig, so what did he do? He traded the entire farm for uh, Bartolo Colon. <laughs> and uh, do we have to worry about anything like that happening again here? I don't think so, but, um, I, you know, the situation does remind me, uh, again, of 2004, where you had, you know, the young guy um, in there, in Jim Duquette, and you know the the organization never took his training wheels off his bike, right? They they hired the the outside advisors, and there was controversy as to whose input was the the thing that that was you know important in the Casimir Vez, uh, Zambrano trade and the um, uh, you know the the ridiculous you know Kirk Benson trade, which involved Jose Bautista of all people, um, you know, and and and. A, you know, it comes out, of course, at the end of the season that they never had intentions of uh, giving Duquette the job anyway. They wanted Omar Minaya. They basically sent him off to Montreal for a, 
you know, his training and, and would regain him with, you know, the support of the commissioner's office. Um, you know, Sandy Alderson, I don't think, was ever a choice of the, of the ball club itself. I don't think, uh, you know, Fred or Jeff have any idea who ought to be the general manager. I, I feel like Alderson arrived more or less uh, in the manner of a, a, you know, a lender putting in a new board of directors at a company that is, you know, in debt to it. You know, they, they needed to, um, you know, rectify the financial crisis they were under and, and got the best guy uh, who could manage on a budget and, and, you know, give the illusion of contention while they were kind of picking themselves off off the ground. And then, of course, then by 2015, you know, they, they had the makings of a, of a championship team in the pitching staff. And, of course, they're, they're uh, you know, bound to keep that up. Um, so, uh, you know, my, my idea for the rest of this season would be, um, uh, you know, Rico and, and Ricciardi and Manaya and I can't imagine all three of those guys are on the same page on anything, um, are the you know, sort of sacrificial lambs for the, you know, rotten uh, 2018 season. And, and Sandy Alderson, um, with his health issues, you know, is a victim. And they go back and, you know, start again under a new uh, administration next year. Um, how they come up with that guy, you know, I think they make a call to the office on Park Avenue and ask who they think they should hire. Yeah, and it worked out okay for him last time. I mean, we yeah. had the the questions about the, the the club's finances, as you touched on, and and yep. uh, certainly Alderson helped them navigate that, and took them to the World Series. Yeah, uh, I mean, they I, think, I think they had no chance in, in from two thousand eight on. Uh, you know, when, once their financial issues arose, and uh, you know, look, they didn't look on the field like they had a chance in in, in nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Uh, and so on, but uh, you know, you 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 know, be terrified to see what what somebody less accomplished at sort of you know operating under a tough budget could do with that club. And and you know, we had a couple of uh, you know good you know moments out of it. You got your Dickies, and you got your uh, Syndergaard trade, and you got you know a, a few things like that. So yeah. One of the things that uh, Alderson was unquestionably good at was making that trade, where he traded the uh, the veteran near the closer to the end of his career than the beginning of his career, and, and getting good prospects back in return. You mentioned the the Dickey one, and of course that's the standout Carlos Beltran uh, as well. And it, it's too bad he's not around to do it this go round. Yeah. You know, maybe we could have gotten something uh, uh, for as Drupal Cabrera or one of those other guys. Yep. But um, uh, as long as we're talking about Alderson, one of his uh, um, less than, than glorious acquisitions was uh, Jason Vargas. Um, he he won eight, made the All-Star team last year and won 18 games, but he's been pretty dismal this year. And Vargas has a, uh, uh, a well-recorded uh, history of being much better in the first half of the year than he does after the All-Star break. So is there any reason to expect improvement for over what we saw in the first half for Vargas here in the second half? Uh, just just Vargas' own pride, I suppose. <laughs> um, 
you know, I have to say that when they made that move, I was not against it because I felt like a veteran starter who could kind of be at the back end of the rotation was one of the major things we were missing a year ago. And, uh, you know, yeah, it couldn't hurt, I thought, you know. Um, and, and, you know, Vargas has just had one of those, you know, Vargas and Swarzak, similarly, those guys who have spring training injuries and get off to a bad start and then just don't get it together. Um, and, uh, you know, so can Vargas be better in the second half? Let's hope so for Vargas's sake, because if he's as bad in the second half, I think they'll, uh, you know, he, he, he can't, he, you know, he can't, he can't help the, the club anymore. If he continues to be this bad, we're going to have to invent an injury if he doesn't have one. Yeah. Just, uh, just so we don't have to see him anymore. Yeah. Can I make one more remark on, on Vargas? And that is the, the 2008, uh, Omar Minaya trade that that took him away in that JJ Putts deal, which really to me signaled in, in a lot of ways the uh, you know the coming gloom of the next several years. Um, uh, you know Vargas is a guy who's around ten years later and still worth something, and JJ Putts is a guy whose uh, career as a Met right now is sort of. Uh, rivaling that of uh, Schwarz Act to this point. So um, just a just a point. It'd have been better off never making that trade. They say that generals are always fighting the last war. And sometimes I think that that's appropriate to, to GMs as well. And of course, the, the Mets got uh, JJ after uh, the reliever meltdown of the, the year before. And, uh, you know, that, that it didn't work out as hoped for. And, and yep. perhaps we're seeing that same thing with Swarzak this year. But the good news is we have Swarzak and Vargas under control for 2019. So we'll get to root for him uh, next year as well. But let's see if we can uh, talk about a, uh, a happier uh, subject. And uh, let's uh, talk about the, the team's uh, young shortstop, Ahmed Rosario, who's been much better in the uh, last month or so. Some lay down a, a very nice bunt earlier in tonight's game. Uh, so do you think that this recent, uh, recent surge of his is just a small sample thing? Or do you think it, uh, he's coming into his own? Well, I hope he comes into his own. There wasn't a whole lot of reason to think that he wouldn't be a good major league player, um, you know, coming in and, you know, I guess the fans got to be a little bit, uh, patient with these young guys. Um, you know, I, I, I thought at the beginning of the season while he was struggling that, you know, you know, thankfully he wasn't the Mets problem, but you know, once, once Cespedes goes down, Bruce goes down, Frazier goes down, you know, Conforto slumps, then, you know, suddenly, you know, uh, Darno goes out. You know, you start looking at, at, you know, the guys who weren't getting it done and, and Rosario started to sort of, you know, stand out more. I, I, I think he, you know, he's shown enough, um, uh, you know, uh, sort of slashing line drive ability. You know, from time to time, he can demonstrate a, a, a better eye at the plate than he's shown. Um, you know, his defense is a little concerning to me, but... Um, you know, let's hope that, uh, you know, this recent uh, few weeks are, are more indicative of what he's going to be like um, going forward because, uh, you know, as he, as he matures, you know, we can't, we can't get a repeat of, of the first half. You mentioned the defense, and we saw another gaffe tonight. 
Uh, not sure if they credited an error on the play or not, but he charged the ball, didn't get in front of it, and uh, kind of elated, even though it wasn't very hard to hit. Uh, either elated or, or didn't get down low enough to yeah. field it and uh, contributed to the to the Padres scoring a run. And uh, to have to say that you know you can't expect a guy to, to come up and 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 be. Uh, be ready to, to hit at full potential, especially at age 22, but you'd like to think that the defense would be a little bit better than what we've yeah. seen from him. I was flashing over him, kind of tumbling over that hit ball during a Yankee series over the weekend, too. You know, it seems like he's got the athletic ability to get to some of these balls. He's just not making the plays. It's a little concerning. So, yeah, I, I, I would have hoped he, he uh, had done better. All right, well, we've reached the point of the show where we give crazy predictions. I'll give you mine and ask you to comment, and then after that I'll uh, ask you to give me a crazy prediction. Are you ready? Yep. All right, my crazy prediction is that uh, Corey Oswalt, who uh, will be starting in a couple of days, is going to lead the Mets in wins in the second half of the season. (laughs) So how crazy is that? That's not that crazy. It could it could certainly happen, you know. Um, he's looked good in his couple of uh, in his in his couple of uh, turns, and as long as he can kind of stay up, you know, he's got to hold off Vargas. He's got to hold off a healthy Syndergaard. He's got to hold off, uh, you know, Wheeler or Mats and uh, you know Degrom. Which of those guys don't get injured or traded in the next two weeks? But um, it's not that crazy. I don't think the Mets are going to win that many games in the second half, so he might not. He, you know, four might might take the title. You never know. Uh, not crazy. All right. Well, all, all I want to say is that week after week, I make these crazy predictions, and every time the guest says, "Nope, nope, not crazy," and uh-huh. none of them ever come true. All right. So I just that that's that's my little lament. All right. Show okay. me what a crazy prediction is. Uh, my crazy prediction: We were talking about um, uh, young pitchers. Uh, I will. My crazy prediction is that Chris Flexen comes back, and that when he comes back, he's wearing number thirty-three. Number thirty-three. All right. I, I feel like I'm missing something here. What's <laughs> What's the sig- I didn't have it, any certainly good not predictions. His, yeah. It's certainly not his waist size. So yeah. what, what's yeah. the significance of number 33? I saw uh, we, uh, those of us who, who were at this event uh, over the offseason where, where Flexen kind of spoke to the fans at this uh, Queens uh, uh, thing in Astoria. And Fle- Flexen was asked about his uniform number. He said that, uh, you know, growing up, his favorite number was 33, but he couldn't have it as long as Matt Harvey was around. And, uh, you know, so, so my, my thought is, you know, maybe it's some motivation for him to kind of get his stuff together because uh, Flexen's been, you know, speaking of sort of disappointing young players, has not really uh, kind of grabbed the ring that's been offered him so far this year. So uh, maybe Flexen comes back. Maybe he wears number 33. He kind of leaves 64 behind. That's not a uh, that's not a serious number for a pitcher. That's a that's Elmer Descends number. You know, you can't <laughs> you can't take a guy seriously coming out of the bullpen wearing number 64. So. Uh, uh, that that's that'd be my guess. Although I, I have to say, 64 might be closer to his actual waistline. He's got such a uh, non-traditional pitcher's body. You know, you you think of the Syndergaards and and the Wheelers, the the long, lean 
uh, gunslinger type guys, and then uh, Flexen and and even uh, Oswald to a certain degree. They they uh, have more in common, I guess, with uh, Rick Russell or uh, or uh, modern day Bartolo Colon. Yeah. And uh, I, I don't know. It just doesn't. It 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 just doesn't. Uh, um, give off it doesn't exude confidence i guess i don't know uh, i mean I, th- I, th- I i looked at these guys pitching and and you know no look I, i'm not confusing them with this and i'm not comparing them but but i, I flash a little bit on siever he had a you know wide lower body and wasn't a particularly tall guy um you know so it's it's you know not not crazy but i agree yeah uh flex is a he's got a He's got a wide lower body. Let's put it that way. So it's interesting. We talked earlier about uh, the the club reissuing Familia's number twenty seven, and you didn't think that they would uh, do that, at least not this year. But you think that they would go ahead and and do that with Harvey, or yeah. that's what makes the, the the crazy part of your prediction, I suppose. Yeah. Well, that and I, you know, I had a hard time thinking of one, but yeah, I mean, I think like, you know, when they do reissue a guy's number. Uh, you know, sometimes there's a message to it, and I think, um, uh, you know, Harvey is uh, gone and not coming back. Um, <laughs> if the Mets were to sort of send a send a message, they'd find somebody to wear number 33 uh, at some point. And uh, you know, given given Flexen's um, uh, remarks that that was his number growing up, I figured uh, he'd be the guy to get it. Yeah, that's very interesting. Um... What, what I guess I wonder is if Lexen, who, who was a, a teammate of Harvey's, if he would feel comfortable enough himself asking for that number, even if it was his number growing up. You're right. You're right. There, there, there's the ego of the athletes involved. And we've never heard uh, ego associated with Matt Harvey before. So, yeah. <laughs> well, well, I have to say, I'm, 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 I'm going to lean slightly towards crazy. But I, I think it. I think that was segment was more informative than crazy. So I, I dig it. I'll work on my insanity. All right, there you go. Um, all right. Well, as long as we're talking about insanity, let's talk about Tim Tebow. Um, you've probably heard that uh, he's got a uh, broken uh, hammock bone in his hand and is likely to uh, to be done for the season. So the, the second season of uh, Tim Tebow Mania ends with a, a, an all-star appearance in double-A and, and a broken hand. Yeah. So um, where do you stand on, on the whole Tebow experiment here in year two? Well, it's a shame that, that it ends with an injury here because, I mean, this is a guy who didn't have a whole lot of time to make it to the major leagues given his age and uh, his financial situation and everything else. He didn't need it. Um, so this is a probably an especially bad time for the injury. Um, I was not um, against the the club giving him a shot. Um, uh, you know, I saw him in spring training. You know, he didn't look like he had great strike zone judgment necessarily. But if you saw him swing, you know, he wasn't he wasn't that far removed from any other minor leaguer on the field. He's a strong guy, a good athlete. Um, and as long as he had the desire to try and do it, and, and you know, he was paying his dues like, like other minor leaguers, hey, you know, what's it hurting? It's not as though, you know, the Mets had such a, a glut of young outfielders whose, you know, playing time and development were being cost by, by Tebow, at least not as far as I know. So, um, you know, I, I think, you know, given the Mets' sort of investment in it and, and the – 
you know, somewhat of the abuse they'd taken for even giving it. I think they would have been very happy to get him up onto the team. Um, uh, you know, particularly if, uh, you know, his performance in, in double A continued, you know, where, whereby, you know, he'll, he'll never be a great ball player, but, you know, a, a legitimate power threat off the bench, he probably could be that, you know, I mean, it, 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 the numbers would seem to indicate the guy had good, uh, good power struck out too much, you know, it's not, uh, terribly unusual for, uh, uh, you know, a minor league slugger. Um, and some of these guys, you know, wind up on the team sometimes, you know, Craig Brazell wound up on the Mets at some point. The only difference between him and Tebow was that, uh, uh, you know, Tebow was a professional football player who's six years or seven years older than Craig Brazell when they arrived, but the same skill set strikes out too much. Uh, every once in a while gets into one, you know, I don't there, there's a place in the big leagues for those guys. Now, I was never uh, a drinker of the, the Kool-Aid over the Tim Tebow cult of personality thing. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I know that uh, a lot of people really look up to him in the, and admire him, and that's great. And he makes people happy. And I think that's worth something, even if it doesn't do anything for me. I mean, I think that's worth, worth something. And you see the, the reaction that people have to him. I tried to go see a game last year. Uh, Columbia was traveling to Hickory, and I was going to go see the, the Mets uh, play in, in Hickory, uh, the visiting site. And the game sold out because Tim Tebow was there. Incredible. And they sold out three days in a row. Yeah. So, I mean, you can't, you can't knock that. I mean, it's yeah. show business. And, and he's, uh, he's great for the business line. And he puts in the work. Whether he can yeah. get results from that, I mean, we, we can certainly uh, argue that, but no one can argue that he puts in, puts in the work, and I think it's a great example to, to the rest of the people in the organization. Yeah, the question is whether, you know, at, at this point, whether he, he's, got the, he's got it in him to redo, you know, double A, which he'll probably have to do again next season if he's going to miss the rest of the year. And you know, like I said, it's, it's, at some point, he's going to be too old to be a, uh, uh, to be a prospect, even though, what is he, 29, 30 now? Well, I mean, you can argue he's already at that point. And, yeah, uh, uh, exactly. He, he made the all-star team this year. Uh, yeah. does, he, does he have to redo double A? Maybe, only because his strikeout numbers were so, were so frightening. Um, and you can't, you can't figure that would get a whole lot better. But, hey, yeah, they could try. But it, it's also a thing that this is probably 85 90% business and, uh, you know, 10% uh, maybe we can get a ball player out of this. And yeah. if uh, the Mets will be playing next year in Syracuse for the first time, and they own that, um, they own that affiliate. So they'd have some, some vested interest in, in the bottom line. So, yeah. uh, but I are there that, SCC fans up there in Syracuse? I, I, I think that uh, his, his popularity uh, uh, transcends uh, SEC, and I think that uh, what happened in Binghamton this year proved that. Huh. Interesting. All right, well, let's uh, try to get one more question in here. And uh, Wilmer Flores, he's, uh, he's kind of a, uh, a lightning rod. I think there's a lot of people who really like him, and then there's uh, the few people who, uh, who, who don't see what all the fuss is about. So uh, where do you stand on Wilmer Flores? I hope not to, to come down in the middle again. But, um, 
you know, uh, if if Wilmer Flores didn't exist, the Mets would need a right-handed hitting uh, bench player who you know is dangerous against left-handed batters. Even though uh, you know Flores's figures haven't really stood out from that perspective this year, but I mean he's the type of player that that every team needs, and every team's got to have one. Um, you know, to the extent that he's a, a, a team-developed guy, to the extent that he's been involved in a lot of emotional moments, both for himself and the fans and the walk-offs and everything else, I got no problem that Wilbur Flores is that guy for the Mets. Uh, you know, if, if uh, you know, a, a, a club, you know, saw the same things in him and, and made us a, a, an offer perhaps for next year's, you know, reserve player or next year's catcher or, or you know, a, a, a second baseman that can do something, you know, you'd have to listen to that and, and be prepared to walk away. But, um, uh, you, know, you know, the question here is, is he going to be on the opening day 2019 roster? Uh, you know, maybe. Uh, that's, that's pretty wishy-washy. That's a, I, I'm, a, I'm a solid maybe on that question. Well, you, you, he's under arbitration now. So he's getting more and more expensive, and, and you bring up the point that every team needs somebody who can go in and, and play in the infield and, and hit against lefties, but does he offer you anything that uh, Gavin Cicchini doesn't, or, or a healthy T.J. Rivera, or Jeff McNeil? Yeah, maybe Jeff McNeil. I'm a little bit um, uh, suspect of... Um, TJ only because he's had such a, a long injury and a, and a long layoff. Um, uh, Ciccini, uh, boy, I would have liked to have seen him on the team two years ago, but uh, I'm not sure the organization believes in him that much. And of course, he's he's losing most of this year with injury, as far as I know. So, um, but yeah, I, I, perhaps a guy like McNeil would be a uh, a good stand-in for a uh, for a Wilmer Flores. Type. Well, we are almost uh, out of time here, but before we go, uh, I'd like to talk about uh, some of your side projects. You got anything interesting going on? Uh, my book, which uh, I believe that I was the, uh, you were the first person I told about at some point uh, early last mm-hmm. year, is uh, uh, called Once Upon a Team, which is a story of the 1884 Wilmington Quick Steps, a uh, minor league baseball team that was uh, in the middle of the season thrust into the major leagues and left behind the worst record of all time. Uh, so my book is, is uh, kind of tells the story of this team and uh, a kind of an unusual, uh, you know, kind of riches to rags story about, uh, about a club. That's a, a kind of an unusual, an unusual baseball story in an unusual setting, uh, the late 19th century, which was a pretty interesting point uh, of baseball in its development and, uh, uh, it's business dealings and all these things that you would recognize in the game today. It was just 134 years ago. <laughs> so, uh, what was their record when they got uh, bumped up to the majors? They were um, they were playing in a league called the Eastern League, which is a minor league that that uh, you know survives today as the AAA International League. Uh, and at the point that they were um, promoted into the big leagues, they were um, 50 and 12 so they were basically a, a an 800 team and they were one game away from clinching the uh, mathematic title this was in uh, early August of uh, that season um, so they were playing 800 ball on the minors uh, they get promoted to the majors and a couple of things happen one is a, a uh, 
there's a big player war going on between the various leagues. Um, the, the league that the Quick Steps were promoted into was called the Union Association. The Union Association was a new major league established that year that was sort of dedicated to this idea of battling the American, uh, American Association internationally for professional players and fans in, in big league cities. Um, so the Quick Steps get caught up in this player war. They lose their two best hitters. Um, and so they're kind of shorthanded from the start. And then they're, they're struck with any number of calamities, um, everything from, uh, you know, travel uh, disasters to um, a player uh, got drunk and fell down an elevator shaft. A, oh, no. <laughs> uh, yeah, umpire nearly died on the field due to a, uh, a foul ball off his face. And it was just, you know, one thing after another to let up to this and... Um, uh, they also kind of got screwed financially by uh, the organization that sort of promised to take them up. And so, um, yeah, they, they won two, lost 16, and went out of business before they were able to make their first uh, uh, long road trip of the year. So, um, you know, there's a caveat to their being the worst team ever in the major leagues in that uh, they didn't last the whole season. And the league that they played in, although it's considered a major league, the Union Association, you know, some are, uh, some historians will argue with you that that uh, maybe it shouldn't be considered a major league because it had teams like the Wilmington Quick Steps in it. <laughs> so that's the story. It's a, a again, there's not a lot of uh, 19th century minor league baseball fans out there, but if you can kind of put that aside, uh, I argue that it's a it's a pretty interesting baseball story, um, and uh, you know, a, a uh, interesting setting and, a, and an interesting story that has some resonance today. I don't think it would take very much to convince me to buy a Quick Steps t-shirt. I think that's a, a great name for a, a minor league team. And I have to say, I think I like it better than uh, Rumble Ponies. I, I, I agree with you. I, um, one of the things we're trying to do is get the uh, Wilmington Blue Rocks, which are sort of their spiritual uh, successors down there in Wilmington, to do a uh, Quick Steps throwback night. Ooh, they'll wear the tremendous. old wool, you know, flappy uniforms and the purple socks, and um, you know, uh, give give us an old school kind of kind of game out there. So the, their color was purple. Yeah, that's that's among the things I learned. There weren't color photographs back then, but there were discussions. Yeah, they wore purple socks, purple belts, uh, and kind of gray uniforms. I think all the uniforms were gray. Um, uh, you know, your socks were the way that you. Uh, identified your colors back then. So they were the Rockies before the Rockies. Yeah, they were. Purple, purple and gray. Nice. Well, excellent. I, I, I assume that uh, people can get this through uh, Amazon and all the usual booksellers? They can get it through all the usual booksellers. You can uh, also reach me you know, at, at Twitter. I'm at Springer66. And uh, I've got a website where I've been blogging a little bit about the book, and that's at Springer66.net. Well, excellent. Um, John, thanks so much for uh, dropping by and, and discussing the Mets and the Quick Steps tonight. My pleasure, Brian, as always. All right, and uh, the, the Mets are trailing here 3-2 in the eighth. Maybe uh, they can pull one out. Uh, everyone, thanks for listening, and uh, we'll see you next week. Good night, everyone, and goodbye. <laughs>